0: Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen here with Life Coach Cindy Chavez. Today is Wednesday. Happy Neville Day, everybody. It is June the 26th, 2019, and it is 4 p.m. in New York, 1 p.m. in Los Angeles, 9 p.m. in London, and let's see, that makes it 6 a.m. in Sydney, Australia. That means that it is, oh God, I hope I'm calculating this properly. I think that means that it's 7 a.m. in Tokyo. We had a request to do Tokyo. If I got Tokyo wrong, I apologize, but I'm going to get better at that. You know how long it took me to get Sydney right, so it takes me a little while to take on a new city. That's awesome. But but I also have distractions and, and one of those distractions is the grass is greener, the audio play that Alex and I have been working on. And Cindy it's getting so real because we started doing rehearsals and recording yesterday.
1: That's
0: so exciting. It's incredibly exciting. And it's even more exciting when you've been doing all this work to create these characters, to create the storyline, and then you hear them come to life. It is an amazing feeling when you've gone through all that work and then, oh wow, that's exactly how I envisioned them. That's the way it sounds. This I'm is so great. I'm
2: so excited.
0: I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear it. Ah, oh, and I mean, I've, I've mentioned before that we have some really terrific actors who have joined us and they are terrific. Um, I, 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 don't even want to say too much because I don't want to give out any spoilers about the show, but I will tell you that we just finished this morning or this afternoon, early this afternoon, we finished, uh, doing the recording with the gentleman who's serving as our host for the first episode and he'll also be a, an ongoing host, kind of a narrator, um, kind of a thing. And, We had him do some extemporaneous, you know, improvising as he was going along. We had to read the lines, but then we had to do like a Robin Williams who just kind of go wild with it. And there was one in particular. He he did this one line. He did he did it straight. It was like a one or two sentence piece that he had to do that was in one section of the show. He did his one or two sentences and then he added in like a half sentence after that. And the three of us, it was a good thing our mics were muted. We were rolling. It was so funny. It was great. So, I mean, this is a fun process. This is a really fun process.
2: It's wonderful. I just can't get over how wonderful it is and how it came together, That's seemingly from my point of view, um, very easily.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Not, not that there wasn't hard work involved, but I mean, there didn't seem to be struggle. There was just work that had to be done, but didn't right. sense that it was frustrating or you were struggling to find the right things or the right people or anything. It's just like it all came together. That's It has.
0: It's true. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there has been a ton of work. I've actually been tracking it because we're trying to figure out, okay, so who's actually putting in what work and so forth. Combined, we put in over 400 hours work on this thing. So there's a lot of work that goes in. But you're absolutely right. It has been, I won't say effortless, because there are times when you have to really focus and concentrate. Okay, especially when you're doing, you know, writing the script like when Alex and I get together and we're, we're kind of scoping out how's the next step is going to go. And you now we're going to do this scene and that scene and how are we going to tie them together? And how's it tie into what we did last week and all that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that, but so it's not effortless, but it is fun and it's engaging. And you you you're constantly trying to think, okay, if the, does this actually work? Did we contradict us in the previous one, or is this going to screw up what we're doing next week? You know, you're, you're playing all this game trying to, to work out the timeline and work out the storyline, and it's fun. It's just a fun activity. That in fact, was- the, if the day comes where it's not fun. That's probably the day I quit being a scriptwriter. Right. Well,
2: uh-huh. here I ask you for a target date where we can listen to the first episode.
0: I can't give you a date yet. Um, I know that we're planning to have the recordings at least our first attempt at the recordings, and they're coming out pretty good. But the, the, let's let's call it the first round of recordings. We're hoping to have that done within a week. I suspect that we may have to have one or two callbacks for certain scenes. I may be wrong about that. Maybe we'll get it all done. We are trying to do multiple takes each time so that we can pick and choose which are the best ones. Um, but yeah, maybe when we're editing together, maybe it'll all just fit. I mean, certainly everything else is fit, With this thing, everything's just kind of falling into place. So it would certainly make sense that would all kind of fit together and fall into place. But I I just don't dare promise that. (laughs) But if it does, if it all falls in place, this thing could be out within like two weeks.
2: Fantastic.
0: I mean, (laughs) this, this is getting real. This is, this is, this is like Neville talked about, right? Neville talks about how an idea, the more that you focus on it, it hardens into reality. This is hardening into reality. Yeah. Right before my eyes.
2: Right before your eyes. And your ears.
0: ears. Yes, well, especially our ears. It's an audio play, so it has to be before the ears. But (laughs) But, uh, Anyway, before we get into um, talking about The Search, which is one of the shortest books he ever wrote, um, but I have a feeling it's going to take at least one episode, maybe more. We'll see. I don't know. Do you think we can get through The Search this week? I don't know. I don't know.
2: When I look at my hard copy of it, there's so many sentences highlighted. (laughs) <laughs> it makes me think that we're going to have some sort of discussion going on. So uh, I don't know. we'll just take it as it comes, I guess.
0: Absolutely. That's what we always do. So anyway, before we get into that, I want to make sure um, I touch on our promotional messages, which include the fact that, hey, one of the benefits of being a listener is you find out when the grass is greener gets released. You hear about it before anybody else. So if you're not yet a subscriber, please become a subscriber to the podcast. Very simple to do. Just go to the homepage of our website, LOAToday.net, and right at the top of the page, you will find instructions for subscribing using your particular device, um, very easy to do. It's like you know following a wizard, an installation wizard or something like that. And then of course once you subscribe, make sure that you share the fact as well that you are, you know, a subscriber so other people can find about it and get their daily dose of happy as well. Um, also feel free and we encourage you to subscribe to us on our YouTube channel because then you get to actually see us. We get you get to see Cindy, you get to see what I look like, you get to see what the other co-hosts look like as we're talking and recording the podcast. Um, just go on to YouTube and do a search for uh LOA Today podcast videos. We'll pop right up. Uh, make sure you click the subscribe button. That way you'll get all of the episodes. And click the little bell next to the subscribe button, and that will give you a notification every single time that we either are doing a live stream, like we're doing right now, or just post a recorded video, and you'll get first notification that there's another one waiting for you to listen to. So by all means, subscribe both ways. That way you get to see us as well as hear us. And, and there are our announcements for the day. So let's do some nevelizing.
2: All right. Great. Like you were saying before, a very short. And whether we'll be up to do all today, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, so it's called a Search. It's a little different than a lot of his other books where he's speaking about um, a theory and methods and things. This book starts telling a story of an experience he had. So the search at the beginning of it he says to victoria yeah the fulfillment of a dream and i believe victoria was his daughter okay apparently um, i was reading that he was married for a very short marriage and then after that marriage uh ended uh single for a long time until he met his second wife and when they married, they had a baby girl, Victoria. So I'm believe, you know, who knows? I don't know. There are lots of Victorias in the world, but I'm assuming that he dedicated this to her.
0: Well, I suspect it, it's probably true because, at least in my copy, it says, to Victoria, and then in italics, the fulfillment of a dream.
2: Oh, you know what? I didn't think about that, that he was calling her the fulfillment of a dream
0: but that seems to be what it implies, at least in the book that I'm looking at.
2: Yeah, that's so nice. Okay. Yeah. So he begins once in an idle interval at sea. And I'll break in to say, we've read several times about Neville traveling by boat, by a ship, mm-hmm. to home to the Barbados, where he was from, to Barbados, right? On a ship. Mm-hmm. And so... It, during this time, I think there were a lot more. There was a lot more sea travel than there is now, with people just hopping on planes. Sure. So I'm guessing that that's what this is referring to—an idle interval at sea. I think he's literally meaning he was at sea.
0: It um, makes sense because he's also breaking a, a not a rule, but a, a tradition of his. He's not inserting a Bible verse. Right. <laughs> he almost always starts with a Bible verse of some kind.
2: So true. So he says, once in an idle interval at sea, I meditated on the perfect state and wondered what I would be were I of two pure eyes to behold iniquity. And that's T-O-O, not, not T-W-O, two eyes. his <laughs> eyes were too pure, he's saying, to behold iniquity, if to me all things were pure and I were without condemnation, as I became lost, fiery brooding, I found myself in the dark environment of the senses. So intense was the feeling. I felt myself a being of fire dwelling in a body of air. Voices from a heavenly chorus with the exaltation of those who had been conquerors in a conflict with death were singing, He is risen, he is risen, and intuitively I knew they meant me. So I remember the first time I read this paragraph, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, this is really powerful, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a, it's really different from a lot of the things we've heard him talk about before. And it right. was, it's like personal. I mean, wow. So he says, yeah. then I seemed to be walking in the night. I soon came upon a scene that might have been the ancient pool of Bethesda, for in this place, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting not for the moving of the water, as of tradition, but waiting for me. As I came near, without thought or effort on my part, they were, one after the other, molded as by the magician of the beautiful. Eyes, hands, feet, all missing members, were drawn from some invisible reservoir, and molded in harmony with that perfection which I felt springing within me. When all were made perfect, the chorus exulted, it is finished. And then the scene dissolved and I awoke. I think that he has, or had, I should say, perfected the ability to focus intensely. Mm-hmm. Because he says at this very beginning, he meditated on the perfect state, mm-hmm. of what he would be if his eyes were too pure to behold iniquity. And look what he, look what the experience that he had. It's like, oh, yeah. he, he's, you know, we talked uh, the last time, uh, podcast, we mentioned the levels of energy and I was talking about the seventh level of energy that sometimes I call it Jesus energy because if mm-hmm. you, we could stay there, we could walk on water. And that's what I, I feel like if he would have gotten out of the ship, he maybe could have walked on the water.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> was, want to rule it out.
2: He was definitely tapping into that miracle level of energy, right? Mm-hmm. Even if mm-hmm. was just in a dream, he was experiencing that level of energy. So he says, I know this vision was the result of my intense meditation upon the idea of perfection. For my meditations invariably bring about union with the state contemplated. So it sounds like he did this more than just once. Oh, yes. Something he could do when he wanted to.
0: I got the feeling he did it regularly just from the way he wrote that.
2: Right? I had been so completely absorbed within the idea that for a while I had become what I contemplated. And the high purpose with which I had for that moment identified myself drew the companionship of high things and fashioned the vision in harmony with my inner nature. The ideal with which we are united works by association of ideas to awaken a thousand moods to create a drama in keeping with the central idea. I first discovered this close relationship of moods to vision when I was aged about seven. I became aware of a mysterious life quickening within me like a stormy ocean of frightening might. I always knew when I would be united with this hidden identity, for my senses were expectant on the nights of these visitations, and I knew beyond all doubt that before morning I would be alone with immensity. I so dreaded these visitations that I would lie awake until my eyes from sheer exhaustion closed. As my eyes closed in sleep, I was no longer solitary, but smitten through and through with another being, and yet I knew it to be myself. It seemed older than life, yet nearer to me than my boyhood. If I tell what I discovered on these nights, I do so not to impose my ideas on others, but that I may give hope to those who seek the law of life. I think this is really interesting that he had these experiences when he was a boy, and that he talks about he was smitten through and through with another being and yet he knew it to be himself, but it seemed older than life.
0: Why is it significant to you that it happened when he was a boy?
2: Well, what's significant to me is that um, I am a huge fan of time travel, fiction, movies, books, etc., right? Okay. <laughs> and I started a practice that actually came into my, my real life, not fiction or watching movies or reading books, but part of my meditative practice was that I would, and I think we've talked about this before, I would take myself in meditation back to some place when I was younger. And especially if I was in a place when I was younger where I was having some kind of difficulty, divorced when I was a child um, I moved across the country at one point and you know I remember those things as being really difficult and so mm-hmm. in my meditation I find myself at that age and I just tell myself everything's gonna be okay believe me I know I'm in the future like it all works out you're gonna be fine mm-hmm. and I also have a, a practice in meditation where I'll go to my find myself in the future because I figure if at a certain age I started reaching back to myself as a younger self, then it's a habit I've continued. So there's an older self of me somewhere that's reaching back to me today and telling me everything's going to be okay.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah.
0: That's interesting too because uh, Linda Armstrong has talked about very much the same thing. In fact, uh, she has led us through a couple of meditations designed to, to lead to that exact kind of result, where you're connecting with either a future self or a past self, or cool. both, sometimes, yeah. Awesome. So, so to hear you describe that, it's like, well, there's a bit of a of a throwback to what Linda and I have talked about.
2: <laughs> well, good. At least I know there are at least two people in the world that don't think that's right. Gonna... right. So,
0: <laughs> and you're not, by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but when I read this, and I and I say, okay. So, and then the other reason why it's significant is because I had several experiences. When I was very young, um, about this age, six, seven years old, and one I remember that I was maybe, I don't know, nine or ten, where it was this same kind of situation where I felt, um, you know, he says an immensity. He knew he would be visited by an immensity. And I I understood that when I read it because I remember being younger and and, a small child and having this sense of, something with me, a presence with me. And it wasn't scary in the way that, you know, we think of monster under the bed scary. Uh, it was just scary because it was huge and powerful, like whatever this was, right? And, and I didn't know what it was. And so when I read this now, I think, oh, that's really interesting, uh, the way he ex- describes it, the way he explains it. And it, as a boy, it doesn't sound like he understood it.
0: The adjective that comes to my mind as you describe that is one that is extremely overused today. But if if we go back to the original meaning, it makes sense. What you described was literally awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. We Mm -hmm. use that word so lightly now, but yeah, it was, it was awesome. So he says, I discovered that my expectant mood worked as a magnet to unite me with this greater me. While my fears made it appear as a stormy sea,
0: I got to interrupt you. Did you, when you had the experience, did you feel like it was your greater me?
2: I don't know. It, it's a that's a hard question to say yes or no to
1: mm-hmm.
2: because I remember feeling very comfortable with it, mm-hmm. like it was supposed to be there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, in, in a familiar way, and at the same time, sort of being frightened that if this feeling gets any bigger, I won't know what to do. (laughs) And it was usually the other thing that was familiar is that he said, you know, I I dreaded these visitations um, that I would lie awake. So obviously (laughs) he in bed as a child, and that's when I would have these experiences. Mm -hmm. And so so I thought, okay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) parallel.
0: Definitely a parallel there. In fact, um, when you're describing that, I'm thinking about somebody who is, and I mean generic, I don't mean one particular person, but I'm thinking about somebody who is very much in tune with who they are. I mean, that that's, that's how you're making this kind of internal connection like that. And it kind of reminds me of, who is it who is, it who is saying this? I can't remember. But it, it, it kind of reminds me of someone who's describing the feeling of, Almost like you're in, you're yourself in two different places. Like you're you're you you are that that inner being. You are that that uh, other side of yourself, the the non-physical side. And then you do a shift, and now you're back in your physical side again. And and that shift in perspective can be kind kind of frightening. It can be daunting. It can be exciting. It can be a little scary. Um, but it can also be comforting at the same time. That's what you're kind of describing there.
2: Yeah, and you know Neville. Come to think of it, Neville talks about a, a similar uh, experience to what you just described. I'm not sure which book, and probably more than one book. Mm-hmm. He talks about going into that. He doesn't ever call it meditation or meditate, or not too often. He uses other books, right. but we've always said, oh, that's meditation, right? But he talks about getting so lost um, in the world you're imagining. That when you when you open your eyes and come back, it's jarring, it's mm-hmm. kind of a shock because you were so present in that other space, right? That you know larger dimensional space, and so uh, it reminds me of that here. And what you just said is that it's kind of a when you come back around, it's kind of shocking.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right?
2: So he says, uh, he says, as the boy, I conceived of this mysterious self as might. And in my union with it, I felt its majesty as a stormy sea, which drenched me and then rolled and tossed me as a helpless wave. <laughs> I can't say I felt like that, but you know, what's interesting is the thought that I expressed a minute ago of thinking, I feel totally comfortable with this. I'm not afraid, but it's very powerful. And if it gets any bigger or feels any more powerful, I won't know what to do. That sounds like what he's talking about. Like, I think, that's what happened. <laughs> it didn't happen to me, but he says it rolled and tossed him as a helpless weight.
0: <laughs> this may sound strange. This may sound a little strange because it doesn't even sound like it's related on the surface. But let me tell you just a few days ago, of course we're in the middle of uh, the, the end of June and in the end of June, particularly in the Northeast and most of the Northern part of the country, um, strawberry season, this is big strawberry season and you get the best strawberries this time of year. Well, of course, we've been eating strawberries like crazy, and we got a batch of strawberries. It was like our third batch, fourth batch, something like that. We got them in pints, and we had our third pint. And this one particular day, I was eating them, and they were really good. And I for whatever reason, I decided to go into the strawberry, if you know what I mean. You know, to just treat it instead of you know chew it and, and swallow it and all that. So good, take the time to really savor it, and you know, do the whole appreciation of oh wow, how great this is. So I did, and it was, I mean, anyone who's had a strawberry that was a bad strawberry, and by bad I mean when you, you know, store-bought that was mass-produced and so forth, it doesn't have much flavor, It maybe has some sweetness. You know that this is not what the normal experience is with that kind of strawberry. But when you have a really, really good one, this is the experience. You bite into it, and the, that strawberry flavor is just overwhelming. It, it overpowers your senses. It overpowers your taste buds. And that's what happened that day, and it happened so much that, the closest word I can think of to describe it was orgasmic. It was literally taking over my entire sensory system.
1: Draw to the point forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. To the point where it's like I was on overload. I actually had to rip my attention away because it was too overpowering.
1: That's amazing.
0: And and, and that's kind of what you it sounds like you were describing. You were yeah. describing where it just you you had this connection going on internally and it was so overwhelming that it had this it's semi-scary side to it, even though it wasn't scary.
2: Right. I had a the, the second experience that I, I we read something from Neville uh, ages ago, but I remember saying, oh, my goodness, um, I had this experience when I was a kid. I was sitting on the back of the couch, like with my feet on the part of the couch that you were supposed to sit on. I was mm-hmm. really small, and I was sitting up on the back of the couch, and I was just la, 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 doing whatever, TV on. Right. I wasn't really watching it. And all of a sudden, I got the sense that I was just getting bigger and bigger and that everything was shrinking down and getting smaller and smaller. Wow. And when I was um, first in coaching school. It wasn't part of my coaching school, but I was working with another mentor. And, and one of their, like, meditations was that exact thing. Yeah. Rising up until you're looking down upon your house and then down upon your city and then down upon your state. And I, when I was doing meditation – I was thinking, oh, I, I've done this before. And then I, it brought me back to that time as a kid. And what happened that time as a kid is that I felt, I felt this. I don't want to say I felt like I was going to lose control, but I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I felt like the same sense of, oh, no, this is too big and too overwhelming, and I, I stopped. You know, I just pulled myself back from mm-hmm. allowing it to go any further. And so when I'm reading him, I just think he didn't pull himself back. He got rolled and tossed like a <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. Neville was braver as a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So he says, as a man, I conceived of it as love. So this is interesting, right? It's like we grow up and we become an adult and then we look back and we try to figure it out, which is what he sounds like he's doing here.
1: And as by the a,
0: way, I don't I know what you've got there on the text you've got. In the text I've got, it, the letter I is capitalized, so he's treating it as entity.
2: Yes, I do have it that way, and I'm glad you pointed that out. As a man, I conceived of it, yes, as love, and myself, the son of it, and in my union with it. Now, what a love enfolds me. It's a mirror to all. Whatever we conceive it as being, that it is to us. Um, I think many people could very easily um, just insert the word God there, mm-hmm. if that's you know a familiar and comfortable word to use. As a man, I conceived of God as love, and myself the son of God, and in my mm-hmm. name God now, what a love unfolds me. Um, but he, it's interesting that he's just talking about a power right. that felt immense to him as a boy. Mm-hmm. He says, I believe it to be the center through which all the threads of the universe are drawn. I love this visual. Uh, all the threads of the universe are drawn.
1: That's
0: interconnectedness.
2: Right? right? Therefore, I have altered my values and changed my ideas so that they now depend upon and are in harmony with this sole cause of all that is. It is to me that changeless reality which fashions circumstances in harmony with our concept of ourselves. Now, Neville is like the king of going back to this, what I call, identity work. But the stories we tell, the concept we hold of ourselves, he's saying here that there is a sole cause of all that is, and that it fashions circumstances in harmony with our concept of ourselves. Right. So again, the idea of, and he keeps using the word several times, mirror, um, the idea that all of our experiences, the entire universe is a mirror for us showing us something about ourselves and, 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 specifically about our concept of ourselves. Yes. Because that yep. can change, we can consciously change the conception that we have of ourselves, the perception that we have of ourselves, our stories and all of that.
0: Which is cool. By the way, I, I, I mentioned that because there was a time I didn't think you could do that. and Now I understand you can. That's cool. That's really cool.
2: So he says, as soon as we succeed in transforming ourselves, the world will melt magically before our eyes and reshape itself in harmony with that which our transformation affirms. This is his big message. All right. So he says, two other visions I will tell. Because they bear out the truth of my assertion that we, by intensity of love and hate, become what we contemplate. Once with closed eyes made radiant from brooding. (laughs) I like that language.
0: (laughs) I've been trying to envision what that is to be, to have eyes that are closed that are made radiant. What does that mean? I'm not sure what that means. It's very evocative emotionally, but I'm not sure if I can create a scene.
2: I want to say that he's more speaking of him having a powerful inner vision than it is about us gazing upon what his eyes look like.
0: That makes more sense to me, yeah.
2: So he says, I meditated. But I think it's funny that he uses the word brooding. Yes. And he, he's used it a lot. in mm-hmm. places where he, like right here, he does say meditated. Uh, in spaces where he talks about meditation, he will also kind of interchangeably talk about brooding.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's kind of funny because it's not the typical definition that I would have for that word.
0: Although it certainly fits. It it qualifies for sure.
2: So he says, once with closed eyes made radiant from brooding, I meditated on the eternal question. Who am I? And felt myself gradually dissolve into a shoreless sea of vibrant light, imagination passing beyond all fear of death. In this state, nothing existed but myself, a boundless ocean of liquid light. Never have I felt more intimate with being, and being is catalog. How long this experience lasted, I do not know. But my return to earth was accompanied by a distinct feeling ...of crystallizing again into human shape. (laughs) At another time, I lay on my bed, and with my eyes shut as in sleep, I brooded on the mystery of Buddha. In a little while, the dark caverns of my brain began to grow luminous. I seemed to be surrounded by luminous clouds, which emanated from my head as fiery, pulsating rings... I saw nothing but these luminous rings for a time. And then there appeared before my eyes a rock of quartz crystal. While I gazed upon it, the crystal broke into pieces which invisible hands quickly shaped into the living Buddha. As I looked on this meditative figure, I saw that it was myself. I was the living Buddha whom I contemplated. A light like the sun glowed from this living image of myself with increasing intensity until it exploded. Then the light gradually faded, and once more I was back within the blackness of my room. Out of what sphere or treasury of design came this being, mightier than human, his garments, the crystal, the light? If I saw, heard, and moved in a world of real beings, when I seemed to myself to be walking in the night, when the lame, the halt, the blind were transformed in harmony with my inner nature, then I am justified in assuming that I have a more subtle body than the physical, a body that can be detached from the physical and used in other spheres. For to see, to hear, to move are functions of an organism, however ethereal, If I brood over the alternative that my psychic experiences were self-begotten fantasy, no less am I moved to wonder at this mightier self who flashes on my mind, a drama as real as those I experience when I am fully awake. I think it's interesting here that Neville talks about uh, spheres. Why? Uh, Because I think there, I get some hints of um, that, Neville was maybe familiar with the Kabbalah.
0: Oh, talk about that for a moment.
2: Well, the Kabbalah is something you can study for a hundred years and just scratch the surface. But in the in what's known as the Tree of Life or the Sephirot, there are spheres. And I'm wondering if that's what he's talking about. Because there's there's the idea that there are different spheres and different levels within those spheres where things are actually going on. And that's what it sounds like when he says a body that can be detached from the physical and used in other spheres. Every once in a while, Neville gives himself away a little bit, I think, by using language that's connected to to the Kabbalah, to Buddhism, to magic, to... Hindu magic, I just, I see different things, and, you know, he, he stays in his one lane, but he, he does bring in things from here and there, so.
0: Which is fine, and it, it's a good thing, I, I think you're bringing up a good point. I'd also like to add in the point that when, we, we've talked before, we've remarked before on numerous occasions about how Neville gives his his writings and his talks In metaphor and in simile and in analogy and symbolism and allegory and just about any other kind of literary device you can think of that isn't literal. Right. And that's his way of, that's his way of communicating. Um, it's very, first of all, it's very appropriate for his time. That was, that was a big thing during uh, the mid 20th century. And it's also appropriate within religious circles. And he gave most of his talks associated with churches. And so it fits that as well, uh, but it also, to me, to my mind, it it's his way of taking that which is not easily describable and describing it. That's one of the great beauties of symbolism and of metaphor. You can describe things that are not easily describable. So you have to kind of follow along. You have to, you know, get a sense of the the Neville Decoder Ring, as we like to call it. But once you've got that, you begin to realize that these metaphors that he's describing, these dreams that he's describing, are metaphorical. I mean, every single one of these little dream visions that he had are metaphorical. Did he actually experience them? Yeah, I suspect he probably did. But they're still metaphorical. They still are representative. So, for instance, he talked in the the first one about how, I think, did he actually use the word God? I can't remember if he used the word God, but about how he just felt this immensely powerful being and that he was that being. Well, Does that mean he thinks that he is God and lord over everybody else? No, it means that metaphorically he has he has combined together all of his teachings and experienced it in his own mind, in his own in his own visceral experience of 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 spiritual connection, and and that's cool. That's really really cool. But it also gives us a clue about how to understand Neville. When we understand that that symbolism is so important in his life, it becomes really easy to just get the idea of spheres, for instance. I mean, you, you pointed to the cabal. That's probably true. That's probably uh, part of the influence. But we've also heard about how uh, we are all interconnected. Lots of people put forth the idea that we're all interconnected. Um, Abraham talks about it. Other uh, teachers and gurus talk about it. Some people talk about it in terms of everybody lives in their own world. Well, that's what a sphere is. A sphere is your own world. People talk about how you you interact with other people when the spheres come in contact with each other. Yes, you know, it, it, it's all fitting the metaphor, and it fits beautifully. So I, I think it's actually a broad metaphor, and I think I think he's using it in in all the different ways that are used to describe what it is to be spiritual beings in connection with each other.
2: Right, and we know that he uh, that he studied lots of different systems, and he studied lots of different. Um, holy books, if you will mm-hmm. and you know and I think he does a great job of connecting them all together
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is yeah. something that I really appreciate and love the more I study the more I connect everything as being pretty much it's all just the same thing right it's different ways of describing the same things so yeah.
0: he, he talked here in, the, in this last vision about how he was the only one there yeah what, what a great way to describe being in your own world. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, I mean, he, he was the only person in that world. Yeah. And it's a beautiful analogy. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's a metaphor that really describes what it's like to be with yourself.
2: So he's uh, this, this next one, I think, is the, the one that I probably have all marked up in my book, just pretty, <laughs> pretty wild. Uh, he says, on these fiery meditations I have entered again and again, And I know beyond all doubt that both assumptions are true. Housed within this form of earth is a body attuned to a world of light. Mm. I have, by intense meditation, lifted it as with a magnet through the skull of this dark house of flesh. The first time I awoke, the fires within me, I thought my head would explode. Mm -hmm. There was an intense vibration at the base of my skull and then sudden oblivion of all. Then I found myself clothed in a garment of light and attached by a silvery elastic cord to the slumbering body on the bed. So exalted were my feelings. I felt related to the stars. In this garment, I roamed spheres more familiar than earth, but found that, as on earth, conditions were molded in harmony with my nature. Self-begotten fantasy, I hear you say no more so than the things of earth. I am an immortal being conceiving myself as man and forming worlds in the likeness and image of my concept of self. So again, you know, going back to the idea that everything we experience is all in our head. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Everything is in our head. And so, uh, I think it's interesting that he says, you know, self-begotten fantasy. I hear you say no more than the things of earth. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah. I'm
2: experiencing all of this the same way I experience anything else.
0: It's also very clear to me that this segment describes an experience that many people have experienced. It's often described as astral travel or yes. or you know, out of body experiences, that kind of thing, and they all play out the same way. It's always you know the the golden light, the uh, filament of connection to the body left behind, going out for a certain distance or a certain time or whatever reaching a point where it was also overwhelming and then returning it's it's the same theme played out over and over again here's neville describing the same one
2: yeah there's actually um and i can't i can't quote the the placement of it but there's actually a verse somewhere i think it's in psalms or proverbs but uh but it talks about if ever the silver cord be broken Mm. my kids and i would always just we had a joke about that we were like you know I would go meditate. I'm going to go meditate. Don't let the cord break, you know, because they're like, what happens if the silver cord breaks when you're off meditating? Do people find you and you're just there in the lotus position and that's just <laughs> never come back? So <laughs> this is a joke. But when Neville says here, the first time I awoke the fires within me, I thought my head would explode. <laughs> mm. Whoa, okay. He felt a vibration at the base of his skull. That's pretty uh that would shake me, I think,
0: right? Uh, it would definitely shake me. I'm sure of it. I mean, I, I get excited whenever I can feel like a like an aura standing from me. That that to me is a major experience. So going through what he's describing, whoo, yeah, that's that's pretty intense.
2: So he says, "What we imagine that we are by our imagination, we have created this stream of life, and by our imagination, we will re-enter that eternal world of light, becoming that which we were before we imagined the world." In the divine economy, nothing is lost. We cannot lose anything save by descent from the sphere where the thing has its natural life. There is no transforming power in death, and whether we are here or there, we fashion the world that surrounds us by the intensity of our imagination and feeling, and we illuminate or darken our lives by the concepts we hold of ourselves. Nothing is more important to us Than our conception of ourselves, and especially is this true of our concept of the deep, hidden one, one is capitalized, within us.
0: I wonder how many people who have read this skip rapidly past the phrase, there is no transforming power in death.
2: Well, I think it was very interesting that, for me anyway, because, I mean, when I think about life after this life, Right, um, I hadn't given it much thought to what he was saying, but now I understand that he is saying, look, even after this life, when we return to wherever we came from, that everything is still created by our imagination. Yes. <laughs> right? It's not, like, <clears throat> it's not like we are conscious creating, or maybe unconsciously creating here by our imagination, and then we pass into the great beyond, and it's any different. He's saying <clears throat> we're still creating everything there with our imagination. I think that's uh, something I hadn't really thought about before.
0: I think it's true, though. Yeah. I mean, I mean that as soon as, as soon as you read that, I just intuitively believed, yes, of course. Like, what else could it possibly be? That's the way I reacted to it.
2: Yeah. So Neville goes on to say, those that help or hinder us, whether they know it or not, are the servants of that law which shapes outward circumstance in harmony with our inner nature. It is our conception of ourselves which frees or constrains us, though it may use material agencies to achieve its purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Because life molds the outer world to reflect the inner arrangement of our minds, there's no way of bringing about the outer perfection we seek other than by the transformation of ourselves. No help, and I know this is highlighted in my book, no help cometh from without. The hills to which we lift our eyes are those of an inner range.
0: I can see why you highlighted that one.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's a verse somewhere that says, um, I lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. Right. The devil is saying, no, no help comes from without. The hills that you lift your eyes to are those of an inner range.
1: That's a great point
2: powerful yes yeah it is thus to our own consciousness that we must turn as to the only reality the only foundation on which all phenomena can be explained we can rely absolutely on the justice of this law to give us only that which is of the nature of ourselves to attempt to change the world before we change our concept of ourselves is to struggle against the nature of things There can be no outer change until there is first an inner change. As within, so without. Now, that's a hermetic principle, so there's (laughs) a devil's dipping into hermeticism a little bit. Once again. I'm not advocating philosophical indifference when I suggest that we should imagine ourselves as already that which we want to be, living in a mental atmosphere of greatness, rather than using physical means and arguments to bring about the desired change. Everything we do, unaccompanied by a change of consciousness, is but futile readjustments of surfaces. <laughs> However we toil or struggle, we can receive no more than our subconscious assumptions affirm. I love that line. Like that. that. That everything we do that's unaccompanied by a change of context is just readjustment of surfaces. Futile readjustment of surfaces. So the Change has to come from within. The change... Mm-hmm a change of our consciousness and then the things outwardly change you know when he talks about um, that to attempt to change the world before we change our concept of ourselves is to struggle against the nature of things
1: Mm -hmm.
2: right the idea that to want to have a more positive experience is a negative experience yes and to accept a negative experience is a more positive experience.
1: can be. Mm-hmm.
2: Right? So when we are resisting, when we are unhappy with the way things are, and we're fighting against it, and we're thinking this should not be this way, um, and we all do that, right? <laughs> um, oh, yes. But we're fighting with reality when we do that. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, I like the, the way he phrased it a couple of paragraphs back. There can be no outer change until there is first an in inner change. Yes. And, and the order that he states that in suggests, yes, there can be outer change. It's not yes. like the outer change is impossible. It's not like outer change is is outside of our reach, but we have to change inside first. It's the order of things.
2: Exactly. Because, like he says, if, if we haven't changed the inside, then changing the outside is just a futile readjustment of surfaces.
1: That's it. That's
2: just on the surface. We're making changes on the surface that aren't Mm -hmm. going to be very deep. However we toil or struggle, we can receive no more than our subconscious assumptions affirm. To protest against anything which happens to us is to protest against the law of our being and our rulership over our own destiny. The circumstances of my life are too closely related to my conception of myself not to have been launched by my own spirit from some magical storehouse of my being. (laughs) If there is pain to me in these happenings, I should look within myself for the cause, for I am moved here and there and made to live in a world in harmony with my concept of myself. Intense meditation brings about a union with the state contemplated and during this union, we see visions, have experiences, and behave in keeping with our change of consciousness. This shows us that a transformation of consciousness will result in a change of environment and behavior. However, our ordinary alterations of consciousness as we pass from one state to another are not transformations because each of them is so rapidly succeeded by another in the reverse direction. Mm-hmm. But whenever one state grows so stable as to definitely expel its rivals, then that central habitual state defines the character and is a true transformation. To say that we are transformed means that ideas previously peripheral in our consciousness now take a central place and form the habitual center of our energy. I like the way he says that, you know, that we come, we come back very quickly. That's why we can't always say it's a transformation, because every transformation is rapidly succeeded by another in the reverse direction. <laughs> so,
0: and what is he, what, when he described that, on um, uh, like the surface and on a uh, deeper level, it just instantly came to me, that's what we do all the time. Right. We regularly do that. And what... <laughs> those of us who are studying to be deliberate conscious creators are trying to learn to do is to do that less often, to spend more time focused on what we prefer and not fall into that little trap, but we still do it at times. It's just part of being human.
2: He says, all wars prove that violent emotions are extremely potent in precipitating mental rearrangements. Every great conflict has been followed by an era of materialism and greed in which the ideals for which the conflict ostensibly was waged are submerged. This is inevitable because war evokes hate, which impels a dissenting consciousness from the plane of the ideal to the level where the conflict is waged. And we talked uh, a little bit, well, we have talked many times about energy levels. Um, but in, in the system that I teach where there are seven levels of energy Level one is victim level, and level two is conflict. So, you see, and we talked a minute ago about the walking on water level is seven, right? So, when he's talking about descent and consciousness from the plane of the ideal, which would be where he was when all the people were just being healed from being around him.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, to descending to the level where conflict is waged. That's way down at the bottom of the energy ladder there.
0: Mm -hmm. It is. That's true. And in so describing, he also ends up describing the nature of us coming to terms with the fact that we are both. We are both that being that is capable of walking on water, and we are also equally that being that is capable of engaging in conflict or even lower levels. We are both.
2: Yes. And, you know, I heard someone recently say um, they use the term larger self instead of higher self. Mm-hmm. And the point they were making is that our whole self is what you just said. Mm-hmm. Our, it's it's a, a self that involves everything, that we came here to experience everything. Our ego thinks that that should be only things that feel good and that we think are beneficial. but But in truth our larger self uh, experiences a lot more. And I don't know what Neville would have to say about that, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's worth entertaining.
0: I don't know what he would say about it either, to be honest, but it would be interesting to find out what he would say. My suspicion is he would, I, I don't think he actually separates them in his mind. He just, he separates them for us. He talks about, uh, in, in this uh, paragraph, let's see. I, I forget where we are here, but the paragraph I'm looking at: "Love and hate have a magical transforming power, and we go through their exercise in the likeness of what we contemplate." Love and hate have a magical transforming power. So he is on some level aware yes. of that full wholeness in, yes, in, I mean, in this vision yes. that he's describing here.
2: Yes, and he also said uh, just a few lines back he was talking about whatever we create whether it's, you know, from love or hate, whatever we create that it's, it's coming from some magical storehouse of our own.
1: Right. Self, right? So, right.
2: So, okay. So he says, if we would become as emotionally aroused over our ideals as we become over our dislikes, <laughs> we would ascend to the plane of our ideals as easily as we now descend to the level of our hates, love and hate. This is what you were just reading. Love and hate have a magical transforming power, and we grow through their exercise into the lightness of what we contemplate. By intensity of hatred, we create in ourselves the character we imagine in our enemies. Qualities die for want of attention. So the unlovely states might best be rubbed out by imagining beauty for ashes and joy for mourning, rather than by direct attacks on the state from which we would be free. Whatsoever things are lovely and of a good report, think on these things. For we become that which we, were, which we are on rapport. There's nothing to change but our concept of self. Humanity is a single being in spite of its many forms and faces, and there is in it only such seeming separation as we find in our own being when we are dreaming. The pictures and circumstances we see in dreams are creations of our own imagination and have no existence save in ourselves. The same is true of the pictures and circumstances we see in this dream of life. They reveal our concepts of ourselves. As soon as we succeed in transforming self, our world will dissolve and reshape itself in harmony with that which our change affirms. The universe which we study with such care is a dream. We the dreamers of the dream. Eternal dreamers dreaming non-eternal dreams. One day, like Nebuchadnezzar, we shall awaken from the dream, from the nightmare in which we fought with demons, to find that we really never left our eternal home, that we were never born and have never died, save in our dream.
0: This is this is a very appropriate this last two paragraphs. Um, in part because of a conversation you and I had before we started the podcast, which we kind of touched on very briefly. Um I'd been noticing in Facebook groups a lot of people talking about um the idea of others being our ourselves intern internally expanding outward or, you know, they, they are extensions of us outside. And, and here he says, in a way that seems quite blunt, he says, humanity is a single being in spite of its many forms and faces. So how do we take that? I mean, a lot of people take that as literal. There is just one being. Humanity is just one being. And as I read that, I keep reminding myself, everything he writes is metaphor. Right. Everything he writes is symbolic. If you take that if you fail to take that into account, you miss the meaning of what he's saying. Yes, we are all connected and in that sense we are all a single being, in spite of its many forms and faces. Does that mean that, that he that's all he thinks of? No, I don't think so. I think he thinks of it as as a much bigger picture than that. And that's right, right. that's the beauty of it as far as I'm concerned.
2: It's like the analogy that we hear people talk about that, you know, the the ocean is made up of many drops of water. It's still mm-hmm. Humanity is humanity, but we are individuals as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: We're both. It, it is, it's the wonderful non-contradiction contradiction. It, it's, it's, the, it's the conundrum. How can we be both all one and all individual? And yet we are. That's exactly what we are. We are, we come from the same substance and we are all individuals at the same time. And there's no contradiction in that. No
2: contradiction.
0: Yeah. And that is so cool. But that that's what I see when I read this. There are other people who are going to see differently. Fine. They can see differently. But to me, they're missing a really cool portion of this. They're saying, yes, great. We are all a single being. And they kind of stop there. But, he goes on to say the pictures and circumstances we see in dreams are creations of our own imagination. and have no existence statement ourselves. Okay. Right. Well, the only way you can have that concept is if there are other selves. I mean, why talk about having the concept within ourselves? They'd be pointless.
1: Right.
0: You know, there have to be other selves in order for there to be within ourselves. Okay. So it, he, he's thinking in a much broader sense in this, and the thinking is, is a beautiful dream. He says it in the last sentence. We've never been born, we have never died, save in our dream. That, I mean, we all know humans come into this world born. We are birthed. <laughs> we all know that the bodies that we live in die. That is part of what goes on. And yet he says we were never born and we never die, save in our dream. What else can that possibly be but a metaphorical way of describing what happens on a larger scale? On, on, from taking the broader picture into account, Right. Oh, I
2: think
0: that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's cool. <laughs> I very much enjoyed this little book. I did
0: too. I, did too. <laughs> I, I didn't know we could get through a book in one show.
2: We got through a whole book in one show.
0: I mean, fortunately, <laughs> it was, it, in this particular you know paperback book, it was six pages, so that was handleable <laughs> for us. Yeah.
2: you Still want <laughs> to give us a round of applause? Yay!
0: Yay. We did.
2: <laughs> See us take six pages a month so you know
0: before we leave the book though I want to ask you a question sure. why did he call it the search do you think I think there's a very there, there are a number of possible reasons but I think there's one reason that resonates with me before I bring it up I'm curious what you think why do you think he calls it the search
2: that's a really interesting question because he never mentions that As far not as at all he, yeah he doesn't tell you why um, but I think of two things that are connected one is that he starts telling, uh, he tells about an experience he had when he was a boy. Mm-hmm. And then he says, as a man, I, I conceived that this was love. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if it was his search to find out what that was.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's it, what I it,
0: think. It's kind of like the eternal search. It's the search that everybody goes through, the search of trying to to gain meaning. What's the meaning of life? What What's all of this this stuff about? You know, answer the eternal questions that everybody tries to answer. What, what What is it all? That's what the search is, and this is his explanation of how his search has gone.
2: You used a term when we were talking about, when I was mentioning our, our larger self, which you sometimes may hear me say my wiser self, Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's a wiser self. And you used the term wholeness. And and that's it. That's that's what we're here to do. We're here to become whole. That's the great work. That's that's what we're here to do. We're here to unify our our will to become whole and not be so. um, We often have, you know, I joked about internal conflict, but we we often have a lot of it. Think about times when we say things like, uh, you know, Cindy, do you want X, Y, Z? Well, part of me does, and part of me does. You know, that conflict, instead of being unified in, in what we know and what we want and who we are, we have lots of places where we don't accept part of who we are. That's where the miracle work is so powerful. <laughs> you know, once we can accept our whole, our whole self, the higher self and the lower self, the, the whole self, the larger self. Uh, that's when things really start happening.
0: And for me, when I, when I see that title, The Search, the way I picture it in my mind and in my soul, really, is it's the search to fill in the gaps of my understanding. Yeah, It's not like I'm broken and have to heal myself. No. It's coming to terms with that wholeness that I already am and have been all along.
2: Yes. Yes. It's a process. It's a process. That's what we doing
0: here. (laughs) That's why we do this show.
2: Why we do this show? Yes.
0: Plus, it's also fun, and it's our daily dose of (laughs) happy. So, thank you very much. We're actually going to be missing you for a couple of weeks. You're going to be taking a little bit of sabbatical. I am
2: uh, am taking a a couple of weeks off, and um, I'm going to do lots of reading. Probably some of it will be Neville. mm -hmm. Resting and relaxing, and uh, but I'll be back.
0: So the next couple of weeks, uh most likely it's gonna be my good friend Alex stepping in to uh do the Wednesday shows for us. And uh we won't be touching on Neville for the next couple of weeks, but we will get back to Neville when Cindy returns. So just because Cindy is gone doesn't mean that Neville Day is gone forever. It is not. It will return. You just have to be a little patient and think of it as like a summer vacation. <laughs> perfect which is perfect so thank you very much cindy as usual you have guided us through this book as the other books so brilliantly and we really appreciate all your insights it was wonderful also uh, remind people how to reach cindy chavez the life coach uh,
2: they can find me online cindy C i n d i e c h a v e z c-i-n-d-i-e c-h-a-v-e-z.com i would love to hear from you
0: Excellent. And uh, we, we wish you well. We hope you have a wonderful vacation, a wonderful time off. And thank you to our live stream and to our podcast listeners as well. We will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye,
1: everybody. Bye, everybody.